In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel for 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. In Ahab's time, Hiel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord, spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. And now if you can turn to chapter 18. After a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab had summoned Obadiah, his palace administrator. Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. While Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, fifty in each, and had supplied them with food and water. Ahab had said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs and valleys. Maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive so we will not have to kill any of our animals. So they they divided the land they were to cover, Ahab going in one direction and Obadiah in another. As Obadiah was walking along, Elijah met him. Obadiah recognized him, bowed down to the ground and said, Is it really you, my lord Elijah? Yes, he replied. Go tell your master... Elijah is here. What have I done wrong, asked Obadiah, that you are handing your servant over to Ahab to be put to death? As surely as the Lord your God lives, there is not a nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to look for you. And whenever a nation or kingdom claimed you were not there, he made them swear they could not find you. But now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. I don't know where the Spirit of the Lord may carry you when I leave you. If I go and tell Ahab and he doesn't find you, he will kill me. Yet I, your servant, have worshipped the Lord since my youth. Haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, fifty in each, and supplied them with food and water. And now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. He will kill me. Elijah said, As the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. But you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. 
Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. This is God's word. Well, morning, if we've not met, uh, my name's uh, Matt Fuller. It'd be lovely to meet you uh, afterwards. And uh, if we were going to reenact this chapter 18, you'd have Jimmy as Elijah, wouldn't you? That, you know, he's <laughs> getting into role there. You've got to give him some sackcloth, give him some locust sandwiches. But then um, uh, you'd have to, there we go. It'd be great. Let me lead us in prayer as we begin. Father, again, we, we come to an ancient narrative that you've recorded for us and think in many ways it seems so distant. And yet, would your spirit so obviously show us this is entirely contemporary? Would we understand the choice facing them, the choice facing us, and choose to follow Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. Now, with apologies, we have only really read half of this extraordinary encounter, the story of Elijah uh, fighting the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. But already, uh, there's just too much to do in one morning, I just couldn't manage it. But already the, the main issue becomes very clear in chapter 18. Who is God or who's the real God? And the application is really going to be in verse 21 this week and next week. Elijah will say, said to the people, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. How long will you keep wavering between these two opinions? That's the issue of uh, 1 Kings chapter 18. Now, if you're joining us, uh, we began looking at this story really last week in, uh, in chapter 17. It's a conflict, really, the, all the way through these uh, uh, several chapters in uh, uh, 1 Kings. Uh, a conflict, if you can put it in these terms, between uh, two thrones, the, the throne of the Lord, Yahweh, literally in the Old Testament, but the Lord and Baal, Baalism was the state religion of the time under Ahab. And this battle is going to take place. The year is about 870 BC. The, the nation of Israel is in an incredibly miserable state, morally, spiritually. It's in a shocking state. Economically, it's doing pretty well. Uh, but it's, the nation has, shrunk, uh, has um, uh, sunken to its lowest level, really, for years. And it's got to the point where the Lord has said, enough. I'm now going to demonstrate. I am God, and Baal is just lies. Nonsense. 
So last time uh, we, we uh, began looking at the account really in chapter 17 and verse 1, Elijah arrives on the scene. Chapter 17, verse 1, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, the king of Israel, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. It's not going to rain, Ahab, for three and a half years. And there's a bit of background in chapter 17, and we come today to chapter 18, verse 1. After a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, go and present yourself to Ahab, and I'll send rain. So after this three, three and a half years where there's been no rain, the Lord says, okay, now we're going to do it. I'm going to make it rain again. But just so that everyone realizes that I am doing this, not this made-up god, Baal, who was a fertility god of the Canaanites at the time. He was meant to be the god of rain, to show that it's me that's doing this. Let's have a massive contest. We'll gather the nation together uh, on Mount Carmel, and it's going to be a little bit like uh, a cup final and a state opening of parliament uh, and a queen's jubilee. I want all the cameras there. I want all the people there, and I'm going to show I'm the real god. And um, We'll look at that. Uh, next week. But the first half we're looking at here, chapter 18, it's, it's a bit, it's like the pre-match build-up, you know, that goes on for several hours uh, before you actually get to the game itself, uh, and they wheel in everyone who's ever played uh, in, the, in the game at all. It's that, the first half of chapter 18. But we're still building up to this decision. Verse 21. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God... Follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. How long will you waver? You must understand that rightly. I think in English we think waver. It's just, oh, I can't quite make up my mind. Let's go to the cinema. Do we see Zootropolis or do we see Batman? What mood are you in? I don't know. One's quite well reviewed, one's terrible. Uh, But I can't make up my mind. I'm wavering a little bit. It's a little more than that. It's your orientation of life. Which one will you follow? So you might say to a man, which is about to be a man, but you might have to say to someone who's having an affair, who keeps wavering between his spouse and their lover. How long will you waver? This can't go on running between one and the other. You can't have both. It's time to make a choice. Which one? Which one are you committed to? One must now be your choice. That's what Elijah is saying to the people. How long? You can't keep flitting between God and this idol. Now, I take it there are unlikely to be many here this morning wavering, oh, do I, do I follow Jesus Christ or do I follow Baal? Oh, it's such a tough decision. Uh, that isn't one we really struggle with. We'll see next week in more detail. Baal was a pretty horrible religion to follow. It involved child sacrifice. We had a bit of it read. You want to rebuild Jericho? Quick, sacrifice your child to make sure the walls are built happily. You know, it's a pretty miserable thing. Not many of us are struggling with that choice. But wavering between following the true God, Jesus Christ, and other idols. Oh, that's a choice that's played out nationally all the time, individually. It's a choice that's played out in the human heart, in mine and in yours, day by day, 
week by week. I guess when you get to the New Testament, Jesus puts it most starkly in regard to money. You could say it of anything. But in, uh, famously in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, Jesus would put it, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one or love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot. You could put anything in there. You cannot serve both God and your sexual appetites. You cannot serve both God and your career. You can't serve both. One always comes first and the other comes second. You can't have God and money. It's God or money. In terms of which you follow, which you serve. Understand me rightly. Anyone here who, this morning who's a Christian has money. You probably have some in your pocket. It may only be 13 pence, but you probably have some. But you can't serve both. You cannot serve God and money. One always comes out on top. One always has first allegiance. One has first in your affections, in your heart. And Elijah was saying to the people back then, stop wavering. Stop flitting from one to the other. Choose. Follow the Lord. Let me cut it this way. Uh, in one sense, I say this is the pre-match build-up to, to next week when we look at the conflict itself. But let me cut it this way. Let's look at the people in general. We'll look at Obadiah, secondly, and then we'll turn to us. Okay, Fairly simple, the people, Obadiah, us. Let's have a look at it then. Uh, first of all, the people. The people wavered between Baal and the Lord. That's their situation. That's why Elijah's there. The people wavered. Between Baal and the Lord. Now, uh, we went back into chapter 16 to give us a little bit of context of what's going on here. And I just want to do that before we really get to to chapter 18. So uh, chapter 16, verse 29, let me just turn you back there. Just so we, we understand the choice and why it is that the people are wavering. Why would you flip between following God and a pretty miserable religion involving child sacrifice? Why would you do that? Well, chapter 16, verse 29. In the 38th year of, uh, of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, Ahab, son of Omri, became king over Israel. He reigned in Samaria over Israel for 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He's the worst king ever. Now, that's God's verdict. That's the Bible's verdict. But even from the little bit of blurb that we've got here, it's not hard to imagine what a uh, a secular press might make of Ahab. Imagine just a couple of years earlier, it's the 20th anniversary of Ahab coming to the throne. And so imagine, let's go back to, uh, let's see if we've got got the, you know, so here's, maybe you can read it or not. But let me just highlight one or two things and perhaps how the secular press would draw them out. So here's a a newspaper report. Today we celebrate the 20th anniversary of King Ahab taking the throne. And we want to praise him for his stability that he's brought to the realm after years of civil war. We give thanks for his, his exceptional wisdom in diplomacy. His marriage to King, excuse me, to Princess Jezebel of the Sidonians. Well, that's brought us a powerful ally. That's opened up significant trading agreements. We are wealthier than we've been in years due to his diplomacy. 
He's undertaken great building projects, rebuilding the strategic border city of Jericho. Our borders are secure now due to Ahab's military alliances and military investment. And crucially, he's moved us on. He's moved us on from the medieval monotheism of the past. Now that worship of Baal is the state religion, we can all express ourselves sexually with as much greater freedom. We have maturity now. We can worship God Baal through sex. How wonderful that we can go to his church and meet with a prostitute and worship him by doing that. So Ahab has taken us into the modern world, no longer stuck in the past, pretending that there's only one God and worshiping him. So we praise you, King Ahab, on your 20th accession to the throne or something like that. It's going to run a bit like that. So from one perspective, economically, diplomatically, things are going very well in Israel. But morally and spiritually, well, all you need to know really is verse 33. Ahab did more to arouse the anger of the Lord than all the kings of Israel before him. It's the verdict that matters. But do you start to see the nature of the choice? If you're Joe, average Israelite of the time, life is good. And you probably know that the, you know, the, the God of your fathers is the Lord, Yahweh. And it's good to know he's there in, in case you might need him for something. That's useful. But you've got to live in the real world. And in the real world, Ahab's king and Baalism is the state religion. And, and there's some appeal to that. To throw out some things, why it would be appealing. Well, why would people like following Baal? Well, material reasons. Baal claimed to be a fertility god. He claimed to put grain, oil, wine on the table, meant to be in control of the rain and the thunder so uh, the, the land has crops growing. So materially, there's probably some appeal. A second one would be influence. Look, there's no two ways about it. If you want to get on in this regime, you've got to follow Baal. The king quite likes Baal. His wife, Jezebel, is obsessed if you're going to make progress in this firm, you've got to run with the top man. So materially, there's appeal. Sort of influence or promotion prospects, there's an appeal. And sexually, as I say, the worship of Baal was done with prostitutes. Because he's a fertility god, if you want him to spread his fertility on the land, the thinking of the time was you need to spread a little fertility of your own if you're a man. Well, I imagine that has some appeal. You have a row with your wife, and all of a sudden you become very holy and say, I need to go and worship at the temple because I'm a bit annoyed with you. You can see the sort of appeal that might have for some. So it's materially, promotion-wise, sexually, that's the sort of appeal to Baal. And those, still, those things still hold appeal. Of course they do in the 21st century it's good to know that God is there. That's useful somewhere in the background. I quite like that. But we've got to live in the real world. And in the real world, you need material goods. And you've got to worry about promotion. That's very important. And sexually, I want to be fulfilled. And in the real world, those things are more important. It's just sort of over there, God. And Elijah says, verse 21... How long will you waver between two opinions? 
If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. And the people said, nothing. Because we don't really want to choose between the two. That's normal. And you can imagine them saying, thinking in their heads, oh, Elijah, you know, can't we just have Baal Monday to Friday? It's all right. We will, you know, Yahweh at the weekend is fine. But in the real world, in the real world, we need Baal Monday to Friday. Can't we, can't we have both? Baal and Yahweh. And he says, no, you choose one. You follow one. I guess that's not too dissimilar of today. We don't really want to choose. Quite like Jesus, if we're Christians, we love Jesus and love the idea of eternity, that's good. Eternity in heaven, good. Christian community, very nice. We like all those things. We want them and, and we want to invest as much as we want in well, material goods and management and promotion. Can't we have both? Or you can possess both, but you can't serve both. You follow one and stop wavering between which one you follow. So that's the people. The people waver between Baal and the Lord. Let's look at Obadiah, because he gets it right. So if I could put it in these terms, Obadiah, he worked for Ahab, but he served the Lord. Okay? Obadiah, he worked for Ahab, but he served the Lord. So we meet him in verse 2. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab had summoned Obadiah, his palace administrator. Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord, you know. While Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in caves, 50 at each, and had supplied them with food and water. Anyway, Ahab had said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs and valleys. Maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive so we'll not have to kill any of our animals. So they divided the land they were going to cover and Ahab went in one direction, Obadiah went in the other. That's Obadiah. Now he's the palace administrator, given in verse 6 that the king says, you take that half, I'll take that half. He's clearly the senior administrator. He's whatever you want to call him. He's the prime minister over the land. He's Obadiah's right-hand man. And to my mind, surprisingly, a number of the, the things I read this week say, well, Obadiah, he's a bit of a compromised character, isn't he? He does follow the Lord, but also he's working for Ahab. And he's a compromised sort of bloke. I don't think we're meant to take him that way. The text is quite clear. Verse 3, he's a devout follower, devout believer in the Lord. And it's not just a private faith, he sticks his neck out. So verse 4, he's gone out of his way to save others. He's a sort of Oscar Schindler figure, rescuing a few from the tyrannical regime of Jezebel. Jezebel's trying to kill anyone who believes in the Lord, anyone who follows Yahweh. She's trying to, it's an attempted genocide. And he's hidden these prophets and we're told he keeps supplying them with food and water, verse 5. There's an ongoing risk to his life. If he's caught, he's dead. So this is a pretty active faith, isn't it? He's putting his life on the line. He's saying, look, I may work for Ahab, but I'm serving the Lord. And his people are far more important to me. That's what Obadiah is doing. 
I think we're meant to notice the contrast between him and Ahab in verses four and five. So verse four, Jezebel is killing off the Lord's prophets. Obadiah saves them. Verse five, Ahab says, oh, we don't want to kill any of our animals. Same verb. So Obadiah is anxious about people. He doesn't want people killed. Ahab's worried about his horses. Doesn't want them killed. Because... Culturally, the horses, they're your military. They pull your chariots. They're your tanks. And as every despot throughout history knows, if you want to remain in power, you keep your military happy. And Ahab's no different. So Obadiah cares about people. Ahab just cares about himself and his military, keeping himself in power. So Obadiah is impressive. And I think in many ways in an entirely understandable way for many of us, he models what it is to follow the Lord. He's got a secular job with a deeply unpleasant boss. Not all have that, I know, but he's got a secular job with an unpleasant boss. He's good at it. He's been promoted to the top of the tree. Most of the tasks he carries out day by day are for his boss. They are for Ahab. And yet he serves the Lord. Yahweh has his primary allegiance. So he's quite happy working for Ahab, or he may not be quite happy, but he gets on working for Ahab and does an excellent job, but he serves the Lord. That is what comes first. Now he's not Elijah. Elijah's the national prophet. Everyone knows Elijah's name. Everyone's heard of Elijah. He's the big guy who's standing, and we'll see in the second half of the chapter, he takes, on the, he takes on the whole country, essentially. It's Elijah versus the world, almost. He's not Elijah, Obadiah. Elijah, big, everyone knows the name, heroic, you know, sort of mad, uh, thick-skinned, uh, crazy prophet, very impressive. He's not Elijah. But Obadiah is quietly faithful. And in his own quiet way, achieves something of enormous significance. Saves the lives of these hundred who go on to serve the whole nation, these prophets, he achieves something of real significance. No fanfare. We know it. Anyone else in Israel know it? Probably not. There's Obadiah, working for Ahab, but serving the Lord. And let me just suggest happily, many, most, I don't know, here are trying to live that life out a little like Obadiah. Very good employees, very good at serving their bosses, and yet, or should, I shouldn't put it that way, very good at working for their bosses, and yet, fundamentally, serving the Lord. So doing a great job, but actually thinking, here I am in my office, and I'm going to save lives. I'm going to seek to tell people about Jesus to save them for eternity. And that's what I'm about. I'm working in the office, but I'm serving Jesus. I wanted to tell people about him. Or uh, uh, people are good, very good employees, very good at what they do, uh, and think, here I am, I'm working in my office. And golly, I'm able to earn a lot of money, and with that, I'm going to serve Jesus. Because that's why I'm here, fundamentally. Or here I am, I'm very good in my office, uh, and I'm, I've risen up the I can achieve promotion, that's good. But while I'm doing that, I'm not about me, I'm about serving Jesus. So while I'm trying to get promoted and trying to do a good job, how can I serve him? 
share who he is, yeah, relate to others differently. So many here, I, I think, I hope, working for Ahab, or people quite not as bad as Ahab, but serving the Lord. Now Obadiah is going great. And then Elijah comes on and says, just a little bit more from you, please, Obadiah. He's willing to take a bit more of a risk. So it's not always easy, is it? I love the reality of Obadiah. I mean, his life is risky. And for you, I don't know, it may feel a little bit risky talking about, you know, can I speak to you about Jesus? Can I tell you why I'm a Christian at work? That might feel a bit risky. What if someone doesn't like you? What if someone thinks you're daft? Whatever it may be. Obadiah is one who takes risks. But then Elijah comes along to him, uh, verse 8, and says, Obadiah, can you go and tell Ahab that I'm here? And Obadiah says, oh, seriously? Verse 9, seriously? What have I done wrong that you're handing your servant over to Ahab to be put to death? Oh, for goodness sake, as surely as the Lord your God lives here, there's not a nation or kingdom where my master Ahab's not sent someone to look for you. Whenever a nation or king claimed you were there, he made them swear you couldn't find you. Now you tell me, I've got to go to my master and say Elijah's here. And I don't know. I'll tell Elijah, I'll tell Ahab that. But verse 12, I don't know where the Spirit of the Lord will take you off. And if I go and tell Ahab you're here and he doesn't find you, he'll kill me. Seriously? Haven't I done enough for you? That's what he's saying, isn't it? Verse 13. Haven't you heard what I've done? Look, I've been pretty good as a follower of the Lord. Verse 13. I did... While Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord, I did hide a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, 50 in each. I supplied them with food. Look, I've put my life on the line for years now. Don't know where you've been. Keep buzzing off here, there, and everywhere. No one can catch you. I've been busy. Verse 14. And now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah's here. He'll kill me. There's real wisdom in that. Or it's not wisdom, real honesty in that, I think. And even, even the good blokes, even the heroes, they waver. They have moments when their knees go a little weak. I think we all know that. But what he needs to hear is this promise from Elijah, verse 15. As the Lord Almighty lives whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. So the people, well, they waver back and forth between Baal and, and, and Yahweh, the Lord. Obadiah, oh, he's terrific. Works for Ahab, serves the Lord. So lastly for us, for you and for me, the question remains, how long will you waver? Verse 21, how long will you waver between two opinions? That's a very entirely sensible uh, uh, way of translating it. I enjoyed the fact that literally the verb in the Hebrew text is how long will you limp between two opinions. Just abuse me. We've just had a month of much limping at Christchurch Mayfair. More legs, feet, uh, joints have been broken, torn, etc. in the last month that I've known in the last 10 years. Lots of people on crutches, lots of people limping. What's the point of that sort of metaphor? How long are you limping between one and another? Limping's hard work, so it seems to me. You move around on crutches, you're slow, it's inconvenient, you're held back, you're not very effective, you can't do everything you want to do, you're restricted, it's time-consuming, it's exhausting. That's right. Elijah is saying, how long will you limp between these two gods? Follow the Lord. 
what he's saying to them. You do see, this is not an exam question he's asking. He's not asking the people, question, who is the true God? Is it A, Yahweh, or B, Baal? A, correct, very good, God, your way. It's who will you follow? So, because that's where it's awkward for you and for me. Because you can read this and think, yes, the Lord is the true God. Jesus Christ rules over one and think, yes, very good. Now, what's for dinner? Because it smells okay today. Now, who will you follow? It's your life he's talking about. It's not a question you answer and then move on. Who will you follow? Let me break it down into two little questions to try and help us. First is this. How do we know if we're wavering badly? How do we know if we're wavering between following Jesus and chasing after other gods, thinking that actually the way to happiness and contentment is through whatever, maybe money or management of our career or marriage or material goods, whatever it may be. How do we know if we're wavering? Well, here's two little things that the the text, I think, seems to throw up, two little marks. There'll be many other ways of asking the question. But verse 18, the fundamental issue in verse 18, Elijah says, you have abandoned the Lord's commands. So there's one test, I would think a simple one. Obedience. Are you obeying what the Lord suggests or tells or commands? Obedience would be one simple test. Or do you waver in that? Inconsistent in that. I met with someone in the week and they're saying, I can't understand it. There's a a guy at our church, he's just terrific. He runs all our, our homeless ministry in the week and he just gives so many hours to running that. And he's just a terrific servant in the week and at the weekend he's sleeping around with multiple women. I don't get it as a Christian how he does that. He's so inconsistent. Well, I mean, one little mark, you wave, it's obvious, that's pretty demonstrable, wavering between following Jesus and following your own desires. Obedience would be one thing. Ambition, I guess, is another way of knowing if we're uh, wavering, what excites us, what shapes our dreams. Is it Jesus and then other stuff? We'll get to it next week, but it's a striking little tangent or throwaway comment you get in verse 30 next week the altar of the Lord is torn down and no one's bothered to rebuild it because these people they they probably would say do you follow the Lord yeah I do but he's just peripheral to their work he's peripheral to what they care about so the fact yeah we've kind of followed the Lord but the fact that he's altar, the place of worship, his church, if you will, is torn down, and no one bothers to rebuild it. Yeah, we follow him, but day to day, well, who cares? Or again, to take the starkest New Testament example, Matthew 6, verse 24, Jesus would say, no one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And again, there's that choice that we hate. You can't serve them both. One always comes out on top. 
And so when you receive some money, what do you think? Do you think, Jesus, what do you want me to do with this? How could I be of most use to you? Or do you think I've got loads of stuff I need to buy that I'd really like to buy? And that comes out on top, and then, Jesus, you can have a little bit that's left over. You can't serve both. One is your Lord, and one is your hobby. You can't, says Jesus. It is impossible to hold on to both equally. You can't. How long will you waver? Last little thing then, last little question to break you down. How do we stop wavering in quite the same way? Because let's be honest, to an extent, we all waver. To a certain extent, uh, my wife had no idea what I was preaching on and um, uh, this morning she had just happened to mention, I asked her, I could repeat this. She said, you know what, I find my, my imagination just flits so often between, at the moment, I spent all weekend flitting between one. I'm fed up with not being able to go away for the weekend. It'd be really nice to have a long weekend away somewhere. And then the other hand, I just keep thinking about Christians being persecuted in Syria and Iraq and what we must do for them and how we can best support them and encourage them. So I just keep flitting between the two. And I think that's most of us. It may not be those two examples, but we our thinking wavers. Of course our thinking does, but fundamentally, who do we follow? How do we stop wavering. What will make the difference in this text? In this text, Obadiah, he's having a bit of a wobble, verses 11 to 14. He's been going great as a believer, but he's having a bit of a wobble. What does he need to hear? He needs to hear the promise of God, verse 15. As the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I will present myself to Ahab today. And I guess, similarly, for you and for me, if we're wavering, who who fundamentally, what's the most important thing to do? We need to hear As surely as Jesus Christ lives. And he does live. He is the true God. No one else conquered death to rule this world but him. So why choose Jesus over these other gods? Well, he's conquered death. A nice house won't do that. Being the managing director of a firm, we won't do that. An ideal marriage, we won't do that. He's conquered death. As surely as he lives, follow him. That's what Obadiah needed to hear. The people, uh, well, we'll get to that next week. The people needed to see the failure of Baal and the demonstration of the Lord. They needed to see a demonstration that the Lord was real. For you and for me, oh, I don't know. But perhaps Paul would put it this way, this way, Romans 5, verse 18, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The true and living God has demonstrated his power, his love, his reality by coming to this world, humbling himself as a man, dying for people who naturally would never get to heaven, rising again, And says, that's the demonstration you need. And when you're wavering, you look at that. And you look at both God's rule, his reality, his power, but also his love for you. See that demonstrated. No idol will die for you. 
will take you through death. No idol loves you. But the true God does. Jesus Christ does. So why are you wavering? When you put them starkly next to one another. But more of that next time. How long will you waver? Asks Elijah. Follow the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, here is a stark choice presented by Elijah, presented by Jesus. There is only one God we can serve. Uh, often day by day, we don't see the starkness of that choice. We tell ourselves, of course we can serve Jesus. Of course we can get the benefits of him and, and heaven and, and, and fellowship. We can get all those benefits. And, and we can serve our own desires. Would you deeply convict us that we cannot serve two masters? Would we choose to follow you because you are very wonderful? You are the true God who loves us and has demonstrated that love for us. Would we follow you? Amen.